doctor says, I've got good news and bad news. Which one do you want first? The man says, give me the bad news first, doc. Doctor says, well, your eyes are nearly blind because you have these terrible cataracts. Your hips and your knees need replacing and surgery. Your spine is crooked. Uh, Also, on a recent trip that you must have taken, you have caught leprosy and malaria, and now you've got pneumonia. And by the way, you also have heart disease. The man goes, okay, what's the good news? Doctor says, well, your hearing is perfect. Now, I tell you that because the Corinthian church, this church in the ancient world that we're coming to the letter of the Corinthians about, was a little bit like this man. Very, very, very messy. Lots of problems, okay? With kind of one good thing going for it. That's it. Uh, It had so many problems. We started Corinthians last year. We're continuing this year. And we're going to not finish it till next year. But we've seen in this book of 1 Corinthians problems already with uh, church unity. They were fighting each other with immorality. There was a man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. There was uh, problems with understanding really key, basic Christian doctrines. Uh, These guys were worldly. They were ungodly. They even looked down on Paul, who was their founding pastor and missionary Pretty much almost everything that could go wrong was going wrong with this church. And Paul is writing to this kind of church. Now, that's what's going on. And yet what's surprising is Paul opens up the letter. And one of the first things he says is he calls them, these Corinthians, these guys with all these problems, he calls them saints. Can you believe that? With all of their problems, all of their ungodliness, he says to the holy ones in Corinth or the saints is the word, because the Bible actually calls all of God's people saints. Now, that's especially astounding, given what I've just said about the Corinthians and all their problems. But that's a really important point. As you grapple with this book of 1 Corinthians, to actually understand that what he calls them, in spite of what they are, is actually key to their transformation. And if you want the big idea to the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is this, that only as they live their identity as saints, Only as they realize that they are, as far as God's concerned, holy. If they live that out consistently, then all their problems will begin to change. You see, God wants them and us to essentially be who we are. This whole letter is going to keep coming back to live the way that God has already made you. You are saints, live like saints. And so for them and us, our identity in Jesus and not the world around us That's got to shape our life together as a church and in the church, okay? So that's 1 Corinthians. Now, I want you to open your Bibles to me, uh, with me, uh, to 1 Corinthians, and you need to keep it open, because what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read the whole of 1 Corinthians 7. Now, I'm not going to obviously be able to cover all of it in detail, so today we're going to do something a little bit special. I'm going to preach, we're going to sing, and then I'm going to come back up for a question time, free for all, all right? Questions that I don't address, things that are on your mind, you can have a chance to ask them after the sermon. So let me read 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to read the whole chapter out, and then we'll actually uh, go into uh, the rest of the, uh, the sermon. But keep in mind this Q&A, so if I don't address it, jot some stuff down that you can ask later on. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7, page 927 on the uh, Blue Pew Bibles. Let me begin reading. Now for the matters you wrote about. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but... Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. 
The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they can't control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife, who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He shouldn't become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He shouldn't become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called to is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin married, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as though they don't, those who mourn as if they didn't, those who are happy as if they weren't, those who buy something as if it weren't theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, 
not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does, does not marry does even better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as she li- he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. All right, let me pray and we'll get into it. Father God, please help me as I speak. Help me to be able to get through this without coughing and spluttering too much. Help me to be clear. Help us as we work through this big, chunky chapter to get the main point, but also to have met you in your word and by your spirit, please change us. Amen. So if you are, have a look at your outlines, you'll see a few points there. I'll just follow that. Um, firstly, let's go to issues and overview. You'll see in chapter 7, verse 1, is the reason why we paused Corinthians at the end of chapter 6 last year. Because chapter 7, verse 1, you actually get Paul starting to specifically address matters that they wrote about. So obviously there's a letter that they wrote to him, all right? We don't have that letter, but we have Paul beginning in chapter 7 and for, for a number of chapters addressing, quoting them. Now, the problem now is we've only got, it's like you're hearing one side of a dialogue, aren't you? There's lots that you can kind of guess at, but there's lots that you can't be absolutely sure of. We know that this chapter, he's dealing with marriage and singleness. That much is obvious. But the reasons why, well, there's no 100% sure. So we see in this chapter, just as a bit of an overview, he'll keep going between talking about marrieds and singles and then marrieds and singles. You'll see that back and forth. So verses 1 to 7, he's talking to marrieds, but particularly on the issue of sex within marriage. Yeah? And then he'll switch to singles, verses 8 and 9. But he's specifically talking about widows and remarrying after your husband has died particularly or wife has died and then verses 10 to 16 he's going to go back to marrieds especially those who are married to unbelievers they obviously raise an issue of whether or not they should stay together or divorce because they they became a christian but their husband or their wife isn't and then at the end of the chapter verses 25 to 40 big chunk back to singles two groups of singles engaged singles as well as widows again so He'll, you know, married singles, married singles, that's sort of what he deals with in this chapter. We can only guess at what was behind these instructions. But a couple of educated guesses would be, number one, probably what Paul is doing is just clarifying. Okay, clarifying. That's probably the, one of the biggest reasons why they wrote to him and he had to write back. See, these were people who became Christians from an entirely non-Christian society. These were first-generation Christians in all of the world, right? We're 2,000 years on. These are first-generation Christians ever. So they have to completely rethink everything because they were Romans with Greek influence. And both the Romans and the Greeks had their own sets of right and wrong, had their own sets of what is acceptable, what is unacceptable, especially when it comes to marriage, sex, singleness. Okay, so they grew up in that environment. Then they became followers of Jesus. And you can imagine everything now is turned around by Jesus. Right? It's a whole different set of 
right, wrong, acceptable, unacceptable. It's like the first time you might have switched from Windows to Mac or Android to Apple. And you switched, but you still have lots of questions you have to Google about. You know, what happens with this? What happens to my calendars? How do I, you know, download apps? And Right? Everything has changed. And now they're having to clarify. So no sex outside of marriage. Does that mean we shouldn't have sex at all? Do you, do you see what I mean? It's a clarification motivation, I think. So Paul is responding to them, responding to Paul. All right? So that's kind of what's going on. So clarification is probably one. The second thing that might have been behind the scenes is he refers to verse 26. You see when he says in verse 26, because of the present crisis. Now, most modern scholarship on this period of time and this book of the Bible will say that he was probably referring to a particular crisis in that time in the ancient world. And that was there was a serious amount of food shortage. All right? Famine across the Roman Empire, grain shortages. And in the ancient world, if you were short of food, it led to things like social unrest, sometimes revolution, sometimes a lot of violence. People can't get food. Inflation goes up. People get really angry, okay? So this was a highly unstable society because of the present crisis, which may be likely to be, right, ancient, uh, at this time, ancient food shortages. And so, especially when it comes to his teaching about being single, or the advantages, even if you're engaged, of staying single, whether or not to follow through on engagements, you know, verses 25 to 40, a lot of that, if you read between the lines, may have been influenced by the present crisis. This is not a time, perhaps, where it's really good to, you know, you may want to hold off on marriages, given the situation. You kind of see what I mean? Now, what's important for us is, as we read this chapter of the Bible, you've got to understand that there are contexts and Corinthian-specific issues. Anytime you read a part of the Bible, any part of the Bible, the first question to ask is, what did it mean for the people then? Right? One of the dangerous things you can do when reading the Bible is immediately jump to, what does it mean for me now? And forget that actually God was using human authors at human times, and you've got to understand what did it mean for them then before you think, what might it mean for me now? So there are a lot of things that meant something for them then, specific issues, perhaps famine, food shortage, and so when we understand and apply it, we actually need to keep that in mind. And so actually, principles of application are much more important than just direct commands. Because you might walk away from this thinking, well, I probably should never get married. That seems to be what Paul is saying. Well, when you understand the context, you might be thinking, okay, that, what's the principle behind that? What are the reasons? Okay, that's more important. So here's the plan. I'm going to, from point number two of my sermon, give you firstly a broad overview of what it says just on two things since they're two big things, marriage and singleness. Then I'm going to go to the heart of the passage, which actually is verses 17 to 24 and 29 to 31. They're the heart. You get that, you get the rest of the passage. We're going to go to that. That'll be my third point. And then point number four, I'll come back to apply it to marrieds and singles, and then we'll have Q&A after the song. Okay, that's where we're going. You ready to go? It's a bit of hard work today, but it's a big chapter and an important chapter. Stay with me. All right. So, marriage and singleness, I'm going to summarize. It's not going to be specific. Raise up in question time if you want. What we will see is that for both groups, married and singles, what Paul and what God is writing through Paul here is really revolutionary. Changes everything, both in their time and in our time. So, firstly, we're going to see it. What difference did Jesus make then for them? 
on marriage and singleness. What was revolutionary for them? Firstly, in the Roman world, it was highly patriarchal. Patriarchy ruled by men. And therefore very unjust, especially if you were a woman, and especially if you were a lower class or middle class woman. You see, back in those days, divorce and remarriage was really easy. Sort of like it is now. No fault divorce. But particularly easy if you were a man. Or, if you were a woman, you happened to be upper class, then yes. But for pretty much everyone else, middle class, lower class women, you had no rights. But for men and upper class women, you could remarry and divorce, basically, whatever the flavor of the month is, alright? You didn't have to have a reason, you could just do it. And it was also okay if you were a married man, only married men, or upper class women, you could have lots of extramarital affairs. And it wasn't counted as adultery. You were expected to have sex before marriage. You were expected to have sex outside of marriage. Prostitute. Okay. And here's really horrible. It's called abuse. Right? They were expected to force their slaves to have sex with them. And the slaves couldn't do anything because their slaves were their property. Pretty horrible, right? Immorality was rife. None of that counted as adultery. What counts as adultery is if you have sex with a married woman who is of an upper class. Then it counts as adultery. Everything else was okay. Now you get that kind of thing happening even in the church in the two chapters previous. We won't look at it. 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Again, I want to say how unjust was that, right? Like this is a patriarchy. It applied to men. It didn't apply to women. It was very, very unjust. And women really had the short end of the straw, especially if you were not an upper class woman. Now, Paul's teaching here, read in light of that. You'll see how that first section, verses 1 to 7, you see how that completely undermines patriarchy, doesn't it? Like it just completely undermines it. Because everything he says that's true for the husband is true for the wife. And everything he says that's true for the wife is true for the husband. That was just unheard of in the ancient world. That they had a mutual love and obligation, responsibility. They both had to be faithful Neither of them considered that their body was their own. They were there to serve their spouse. Right? That was revolutionary. Everything true of the husband was true of the wife. You see that in verses 3 to 4. Now, just as an aside here, I need to say that you cannot use these verses as an excuse to force sex on your spouse. Right? You know when it says, your body is not your own. You have an obligation to your spouse, verses 3 and 4. You can't use that, especially for men, as an excuse for what is actually called abuse. It's called rape, right? You can't actually commit rape in marriage if you force sex on your spouse. And there's absolutely no room for that in Paul's teaching or in any understanding of the Bible. That's called abuse. Because here, as I said, everything is mutual. And sex within marriage also implies consent. You both got to agree to it. Because in verse 5, it says, if you temporarily abstain from sex, it takes both parties to agree. Then clearly, for sex within marriage, it also needs to be for both parties to agree. So there's no room here for claiming that what Paul says here is any excuse to force your spouse to have sex with you. Because that's abuse. All right, you got that? Really important. So that's marriage. It was revolutionary. How equal it was for husbands and wives seeing that your sexual life is there to serve your spouse. Right? That it wasn't just your body for you doing however you like. 
How about singleness? Singleness was, again, what he says here is revolutionary in the ancient world. Now remember, the Bible's teaching, in case it's not clear yet, that sex is a good, good, wonderful gift from God. But it's a good gift that only belongs in marriage, all right? That is the Bible's consistent teaching. God who designed marriage and designed sex designed it this way for our own good. And sex within marriage is not only about procreation, having kids. It's also the relational glue that enhances marriage. And in the teaching of these verses, it's also a way that married couples help each other avoid sexual sin. All right? You see all of that. Now, why I'm saying that and clarifying that is because it means that if you are single, then we're talking about celibate singleness. Not I'm unmarried, unattached, I get to have sex lots and lots and lots. No, celibate singleness, which means singles who are single and therefore want to honor God with their bodies and therefore don't have sex. That's what celibate means. And the view here is that you can be celibate and single and that it is, and he says a number of times, it is a good thing. It is a good thing. It's even a desirable thing. You may even choose it in some circumstances. That was so revolutionary back then. Because in the ancient world, if you were single, then you couldn't have children, or at least any legitimate children. You couldn't pass on your family name. You couldn't have children to then work in your home and help you earn money and take care of you in the future. No one in the ancient world chose to be single. And yet Paul says here, because of Jesus, it can be good to be single and celibate. Revolutionary. Let's look at now, though, because I want you to know that it's equally revolutionary and countercultural what he says about marriage and singleness to us today. Because, more and more so, aren't we? We are not in a Christian society, very post-Christian society. We're very secular, and while we're not patriarchal, thankfully, our views now of marriage, divorce, and sex, it's probably a lot more like the Roman world than it has been for 2,000 years, all right? So God's view on marriage is equally equally revolutionary you see here if you are married or if that's on the cards for you marriage is not for me it's not for me to gratify my selfish desires marriage according to here and everywhere in the bible is monogamous right just the two of you it's faithful you don't cheat you don't have sex outside of the marriage relationship. It's sacrificial. It's all about the other person. And except in circumstances where it's so broken it can't be fixed, and there are legitimate circumstances like abuse or adultery or abandonment, except in those circumstances where it can't be fixed, marriage is for life. Right? As long as you both shall live. We don't fall in and out of love, start and stop marriages, like often we read in the celebrity gossip mags. And so in my marriage, I am to serve and love Karen through thick and thin. And here, especially applied to sex within marriage, even sex, this good gift from God that is supposed to be enjoyable, that relational glue, that's not for me either. That's for me to serve my spouse. That's pretty revolutionary, huh? Which means if you are married, 
whether you're the husband or the wife, do not look for sex or sexual gratification outside of that marriage relationship. The obvious thing is to talk about porn, right? Pornography is not just sinful. It also will take away your ability and your energy to love and serve your spouse sexually. And pornography is selfish sex, isn't it? It's actually abusive sex in a lot of situations. But at the very least, it's all about selfish sex. The person that you are looking at is an object. Now you take that view and put it into your marriage and it will destroy your marriage. Because the very nature of sex is not other person-centered, it's self-centered. Also, the flip side is this. If you're married, sex, and especially if you are in the habit of withholding sex from your spouse, is not a tool for you to manipulate your spouse. You got that? Because it's a way for husbands to serve their wives and wives to serve their husbands. Now, it may be that in some marriages, maybe many marriages, sex can be difficult, unenjoyable, even painful. Let me just say, where there is no abuse, and hear that carefully, where there is no abuse, please talk openly about it. Talk about your sex life together. Get professional help if needed. But don't use sex or withholding sex as a way to manipulate your spouse to get them to do what you want them to do. What if you're single? Well, equally revolutionary. Because you can be single and celibate. And that's entirely possible. It's even desirable. Because contrary to what our culture is saying right now, guess what? Everything you're hearing in the outside world, particularly when it comes to LGBT rights and everything else, is assuming that your sexuality and your ability to express yourself sexually is part of your identity. And so you are less human if you cannot express yourself sexually. And that's a lie. Because here is one place among many where the Bible wants to say your identity is not about your sexuality. Right? Sex is great, but it isn't who you are. And so it'll be baffling to the world that a Christian can choose to be celibate and single. Or while you are single, to remain celibate. And even same-sex attracted Christians. And there are people there who are same-sex attracted. There may be people here who are same-sex attracted. Well, you, out of your desire to obey God, can choose to also be celibate and single. That is completely countercultural, isn't it? You see, friends, we followers of Jesus, the church especially, need to fight our culture's story, our culture's narrative, especially on singleness. This is one area where we need to be different. And can I just talk to married people at the moment? Because married Christians, we have a really important role to play in this. I don't know if you realize. Because it is hard in our culture to be single, and it's therefore much harder in the church to be single and celibate. Marrieds within the church, we need to be sensitive and loving. We need to enfold singles into our fellowship. We need to be a family to them. Give them an understanding and encouragement and do that intentionally because on the whole, churches are failing to help singles. Our church, and I say this to our shame and my shame as your leader, we haven't always done this well. We've had single people leave 
not, it wasn't an easy decision for them, but they just felt like they couldn't fit in. All the singles. We need to do better, don't we? Right? Because the world is saying you can't be single and celibate and happy. And the Bible says otherwise, and we need to make sure we work especially hard to help. Okay, that is married singles, broad overview. Come and ask me questions later on. But point number three, why is, why is it that Jesus can make such a difference both then and now? Now I'm going to get to the guts of the passage because you get this and you will get the rest of chapter 7. And the key is verses 17 to 24, as I said. The main message there, you'll see under point 3a, is to be content to remain as you are. And he says it three times. You'll see verse 17. Look at verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. You'll say it again in verse 20. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. You'll say it third time in 24. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. When you say things three times, it's probably going to be important. So, big idea. Be content to remain as you are. This is not an absolute, because he'll say, especially for slaves, as well as for singles, verse 21, if you're a slave and you gain your freedom, do so. He's not saying absolutely never gain your freedom if you're a slave, as well as those who are single, if you get married, or if you're a widow and you get remarried, it's a good thing. That's totally fine. You haven't sinned. He says that again and again. But the general principle is, be content to remain as you are. Why, though? Why? Well, the key is what he says in the second part, right? Remain as you are, just as God has called you. Or, remain in the situation you were in when God called you. Now, need to clarify. Calling here as it is in the New Testament, is not your situation in life. It's not God has called you into your job, your career is your calling, or even your singleness or your marriage is your calling. That's not what it means here. Otherwise, if you change your job, situation, career, marriage, singleness, you are changing God's calling. You're going against your calling. Read carefully. He's not saying that. Calling in the New Testament is calling to become a Christian. It's calling to belong to Jesus. It's about salvation. It's about sanctification, uh, about becoming and growing as a Christian. That's what God has called you to. Right? And here especially, it's when you were called by God to become a follower of Jesus, when you became a Christian. Because here's the thing, God's calling to save you is by grace. Yeah? Not something that you earn. Not something that you deserve. It's by grace. It's something that God does. It's not something that you can improve on by changing circumstances. You cannot be more or less called by God if it's by grace. And so if I change my marital status, status, if I change my career, if I change my job, my uni degree, in and of itself, that will not make me more or less pleasing to God. That's his point. And if that's true, then you can be content to remain in the situation you are in when God called you to belong to him. Because you are as pleasing to God as Jesus has already made you by grace. You see, what was happening perhaps behind the Corinthians and the issues about marriage and singleness is that they misunderstood this whole idea of what does it mean to live a life that pleases God, yeah? So as a married people in the Corinthian church wanted to act unmarried. They're married, but they wanted to act unmarried. Whether it's, oh, I'll just sleep around outside of marriage like I was single again, or even... 
I need to be more holy by not even having sex with my wife or husband. Married, but acting as if they're unmarried. Singles were tempted to think, well, maybe married life is a much, much better way to live out my calling. Maybe I'll be more pleasing to God if I get married. Right? If I remarry, if I'm a widow. And Paul's answer in all those situations, no, 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 no. You see, be content to remain as you are. Because none of that changes your status before God. Uh, this is what Martin Luther understood in the Reformation. Uh, remember in the 1500s and before then, the, the Roman Catholic Church taught that if you were called, in the wrong way of calling, to be a priest and to be single, which all priests were, that was a higher calling. And Luther said no, because Luther read Paul, and he said no, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're dating, whether you're engaged, whether you're widowed, employed, unemployed, in sickness and health, that is your arena to live out your calling. You're not more holy if you're a priest than if you were a plumber. Our tendency, isn't it? We like to make excuses based on circumstances, don't we? I think this goes right against that. I mean, how many times have you said to yourself, or heard it said to you, if only I was, you fill in the blank, if only I was blank, then I would blank. If only I had a full-time job, then I could start giving money to church. If only my kids were older, then we could go to church regularly. If only I were married to the right person, then I could really serve God. Ever find yourself making excuses like that? God says, no, where you are, what situation you're in right now is your arena to serve God and to live out your calling. And that's the key idea. Another reason Jesus makes all the difference is in verses 29 to 31, the other guts of the passage. Let me read those verses again because it's really important. 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as though they don't, those who mourn as if they didn't, those who are happy as if they weren't, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, but those who use the things of the world as if not engrossing them, for this world in its present form is passing away. Right? This life ain't it. And this motivation explains everything. Like, why is it that my marriage can be not about me? Why is it that singleness can be good, even though I really, really want to get married? The answer is this. This life ain't it. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you are just a traveler passing through. You're a temporary resident heading home. You're pilgrims on a journey to heaven. And that changes everything, doesn't it? The German theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer was engaged to Maria von Wedemeyer when he was arrested and thrown in prison in 1943. They had a wonderful and godly love story. You can actually read, there's a book of published letters he wrote to his fiancée from his jail cell. They're beautiful. Would have been a wonderful marriage, except on April the 9th, 1945, Bonhoeffer was hanged at dawn by the Nazis. He never got to marry. Now, if you have a this-worldly view of life, then that is a tragedy, is it not? What could be more tragic than to be engaged to the woman you love and never get to marry her? Have your life cut short, your engagement cut short. 
But if you have the Bible's view of life, it's not a tragedy ultimately, is it? Or as Pastor John Piper says, Bonhoeffer skipped the shadow and went straight to the reality. And that's why Piper's book, where I got this illustration from, his book on marriage is called This Momentary Marriage. Captures it perfectly, friends. Marriage is momentary. See, heaven radically transforms both singleness and marriage. Because your destiny, if you're a follower of Jesus, your home is to be married to Jesus as his people. A close, intimate relationship with a God who made you and loved you and died for you that you cannot possibly ever experience except in that. And there will be no more human marriages in heaven. And so you see, both singleness and marriage are pointers to heaven. Both find their meaning in heaven. If you are married, then that's a pointer to the greater marriage when you get to heaven. If you are single, then that's also a pointer to the fact that your greater marriage is still to come. Both find their meaning in heaven. And so our attitude to everything we have now, marriage or singleness, job, finances, anything, it's not ours to keep. That's his point. About 20 years ago when I was a much younger man, I was learning to drive manual. I'd learned automatic. I hadn't learned manual. Had a chance to learn manual. Just as I was learning to drive manual, a friend of mine was going on holidays for two weeks. He had a sports car. And he let me drive his sports car for two weeks. Just, you know, I went from a 1.8 liter little hatchback to a V6 three liter engine. It was great because it was very hard to stall those cars, okay? Whereas on my little 1.8 liter, it was easy to stall. Anyway, I loved it. I mean, I got to drive a sports car for two weeks like it was my car. I can tell you, I enjoyed it. But I also knew it wasn't mine to keep. So I used it to get better at driving manual and looking cool, but driving manual. I loved it, but I didn't hold on to it and I wasn't engrossed in it because I had to give it back after two weeks. See, that's what Paul is saying here, right? Every single thing you have in life is on loan. On loan. That's all. You get to steward it. You get to manage it. It's on loan from Jesus. So use it. Enjoy it. But don't hang on to it. Don't be engrossed by it. See, even if you are married and you love being married, that's only temporary. It's momentary. It's not for yours to keep. It's just a pointer. It's just a shadow just a tool to serve God. And strangely enough, same with singleness. Right? Whether you're single now and you may be married in this life, or maybe you'll stay single for the rest of your life, doesn't matter. It's just a pointer as well. It's a shadow. It's very useful as a single person to use it to serve God until you get to heaven. But it's only temporary as well. So let me come back and apply it. For both married and singles, Okay, be content to remain as you are and live out your calling where you are now because that's the main point. The application, I'm just going to go with one direction and you can you know, ask questions later. The application is this. Whether you're married or singles, don't make excuses. All right, don't make excuses if you're married. God has called you, if you're married, not only to be holy and committed in your marriage, but also in your marriage to serve Him and to serve him through your marriage. 
So if you're married, don't make excuses. If your marriage is not the way you or God wants it to be, and maybe it's just a season, or maybe it's always been like that, it's just not what you thought it'd be. You're not happy. Whatever the reason, don't make excuses. Your career, pursuing your comforts, even church ministry shouldn't be an excuse for a bad marriage. Right? Because God is served in and through your marriage. Where you are now, He expects us to be faithful and do everything we can where we are now. And the flip side is this, of course. Don't let your marriage be an excuse for ungodly behavior. Well, my marriage is terrible. We have a very ordinary sex life. Therefore, it's okay for me to be unfaithful. Or if you knew my husband, you would know why I'm so angry all the time. No, no. Don't let your marriage be an excuse for ungodly behavior. And don't let your marriage be an excuse for not serving God as best you can in the stage of life you're in. Now, hear me carefully. Different stages of life in marriage will mean different challenges. I'm not saying it's all got to be the same. But I also want to say it's very easy, isn't it, to idolize our marriage, to idolize our families, so that protecting it takes priority even over commitment to the greater family, the eternal family, God's family, the church. So when I hear new, newly married couples say, hey, we're going to get married, and in the first year of our marriage, we're not going to do any church ministry. I always kind of want to ask, why? Isn't, I mean, sure, you, you want to get to know each other's churches, especially if you, one of you is part of a new church, and you know, you, you want to be wise about your time together, but just a, in principle, first year of marriage, taking time off church ministry just doesn't make sense. Isn't that a good time to figure out how to minister alongside each other? You can overly protect your marriage at the expense of serving God. Or families who regularly skip church because work and extracurricular activities like sport and tutoring means that you don't have a weekend and so in order to get family time, you're going to do Sundays instead. Do you see? That becomes an excuse for not prioritizing God in your family. What about singles? Well, don't let singleness be an excuse either. It's okay to want to get married. It's okay to get married when the opportunity comes. But remember, changing circumstances won't change God's view of you. And it won't change you either, by the way. I mean, those who marry and bring their discontentment into marriage. I'm not content with who I am in Jesus. And if I get a spouse, all my problems will be solved. Do you know what's going to happen? Down the track, you're not going to become more content because if you haven't found it in Jesus, you're not going to find it in your marriage partner. You're just going to be bringing it into your marriage. And no marriage partner can fill the hole that only Jesus can fill. And when you expect them to, it will crush them and embitter you. Do you see? Your identity doesn't come from whether you're married or single. It comes from Jesus. If you haven't figured that out, marriage isn't going to solve that. So while you're single, and by the way, half of all married people will be single again. Unless you both die together in a horrible tragedy. But generally, one of you will die first, the other will be widowed or widower. You'll be single again. While you are single, serve the Lord with all your might. With the advantages singleness brings. See, verses 32 to 35 is true. They're true. Singleness presents unique opportunities. 
to do more for Jesus. You can, right, we're not talking about qualitatively better, all right? We are talking about quantitatively better, right? And not that what you do as a single is God's going to be more pleased with. No, no, no. But you are going to be able to, on the whole, do more. It's just a general fact. If you're married, you'll know what it's like. If you have kids, especially, right? If you're single, use it to serve God with all your might while you have the advantages. If you get married, great. If not, keep going. Don't let your singleness be an excuse for you to be selfish with your time and money and relative freedom. And don't let your desire to get married be an excuse for not dealing with inner issues of discontentment or for you to just put your life on hold until you find a partner. Let me pray. Let's get the band up. We're going to sing and then we're going to have some time for Q&A. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we even gather our thoughts, for, for some of us, maybe there are things that are yeah, really hard to deal with, things to process, things we might even disagree with. You'll help clarify. But ultimately, we pray that whether single or married, we will live every single day for your glory, Jesus. Amen.